Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. For decades, I've been saying we do not have time to be in a hurry. If you're in a hurry, you're going to make first order mistakes. It's incredible how much faster things move when they are given room. Hi, I'm Barry, and this is the Wisdom in Action podcast, brought to you by the Small Giants Academy. Join me as I speak with brilliant people around the world who are working within different systems to create meaningful interventions for a hopeful future. That's the thing that I'm really seeking. What are the ways we need to chart our pathway forward? How do we find our way back to one another and reconnect to this precious world around us? How can we get ourselves out of the mess that we're in and leave a world that we want to gift our children? Welcome to the Wisdom in Action podcast. How to explain who Nora Bateson is. I'll give it a go. Nora Bateson is a celebrated filmmaker, writer and educator who also serves as the president of the International Bateson Institute in Sweden. Her work combines various fields like biology, cognition, art, anthropology and psychology to study ecological patterns in living systems. She's written some incredible books, Small Arcs of Larger Circles and her new one, Combining, which explores the ecology of communication. That all sounds like a lot of fancy stuff. (laughs) And in trying to read her work, I couldn't really crack the code. I didn't really understand it. But as luck would have it, I went on this incredible trip to uh, Scandinavia and Nora was gracious enough to meet me for breakfast before the day's program began. And once I met her, her warmth her generosity of spirit and her playfulness were so infectious that I could not tear myself away from the conversation, which explored systems thinking, complexity, quantum physics. It was amazing and illuminating and something in me shifted in that conversation. So like many chance encounters, I think that meeting Nora really really landed at the right moment, just as I was giving up hope and faith in the future of humanity. So you're welcome. Nora. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the Wisdom and Action podcast. I feel really lucky to have your time. I feel lucky to have yours. (laughs) When we met 
I was telling you that I had a hard time understanding your work just from reading about your work. And I'd been hearing about it from a lot of people that I really admire and respect. And I was like, oh my God, this Nora Bateson, I can't wait to meet her and know her. And it was in sitting together when we had that breakfast in Stockholm that I felt like I really got the download and I really understood your work by you explaining it and just being with you, which makes total sense to me now because your work is about the relationships, the relational field, the space between us. And I haven't stopped talking about our conversation and your work since I've come home. I remember you talking about systems thinking as either through the lens of the situation room or your perspective of thinking and being like the meadow. And I didn't even really understand the depth of it, but I really understood the transmission of what you were saying. And I brought it home with me like a gift that I've been giving out to like everyone. Can you talk to me now about what you meant about the difference between the situation room and the meadow as a lens for thinking about systems change? What a great way to start. First of all, I want to say that both are important, so I'm I'm not ruling one out. I'm just, I think, very careful about the way in which old habits of thinking that are based on strategic lineal causal processes with direct outcomes to first-order problems. This habit runs deep. This is the thinking that's in the depth of industry right? How to create a product. You have an endpoint. You have a whole process that makes it. You step it out. You figure out the machinery needed to get the outpoint. You measure the outpoint. You know you're a success because you have a product and you can count it. But this is not the way a meadow works. The objective, if you will, which is absolutely the wrong word to ever use when you're talking about meadows, is life. And life continuing to make life. So that means that all the organisms have to respond and change in relationship and communication with each other continuously. And the continuity of the meadow requires the discontinuity of other patterns of communication and relationship that are become obsolete as the whole contextual process is changing. The process of the meadow is this process of this fantastic and really for our cognitive capacities, very difficult to to comprehend, ongoing mutual learning between all these different organisms. And then in the situation room, you've got the identification of a problem and the response to that problem. And the identification of the problem can be so acute and so loud and so extreme that it's very distracting to then try to perceive all these other contextual processes that are going on. How I experience it when you talk, I'm like, yes, I want the meadow, but I have really learned, I don't know if it's internalised patriarchy, maybe, probably, or internalised industrialization. that second one is very seductive because identifying a problem and then being able to just engineer our way through it, solve it, whatever it is, is deeply satisfying for a simple part of 
our brains, like my brain. It's what's the problem, fix it, as opposed to holding complexity over time. Yes, exactly. And it's interesting because you started off saying at first felt like I, you didn't quite understand what I was saying. And believe me, you're not the first person to say that. But what happens is that this other way of perceiving gets identified as abstract, which I find fascinating because for me, what's much more abstract is the idea that you could actually respond to a first order problem and not create more chaos. Could you just explain what a first order is? Yes, please. Okay. So I wish that we really have to work on the language of this because it's caught in particular forms of mathematics. And also it's the idea that you can identify the problem and that's the problem that you need to solve. And, you know, just pick anything, whatever. Your teenage son has acne or your kid's not doing well in math class, let's say. You start to address that problem. But that problem isn't really that problem. The problem is not really that they're not doing well in math. The problem is that there's some other way in which something is mattering or that they have attention for, or there's a whole lot of other conditions around that. So then you can get that kid a tutor and you can buckle them in and you can make them get a good grade in math, but you can't make it matter. And without the mattering, the good grade in math is actually fairly useless to their lives. And shallow. And shallow and a loss of the possibility of actually tending something that is in a deeper relational place. And in the case of acne, okay, it's the same thing. You see the problem, you want to deal with the problem. Of course, it's a symptom, you know, it's hormones, it's that time of life. It's, is it a problem anyway? I don't know. Is it diet? Is it sleep? And is it even something wrong? So the way that we are addressing issues. Okay, let's talk about the particulate in the sky, carbon particulate. You can look at that and say we have X number of particles in the sky and we have to get the particles out of the sky, which is true. But so long as you and I are still living our lives and going to the grocery store and paying our taxes and being modern humans, yeah, then the particulate continues. So the problem isn't really the particulate. The problem is that identity is actually rooted in consumerism. And in order to have an identity in the world that we live in, we're actually participating in the processes that create the transportation and the exploitation of people who are working in various kinds of factories or mines or resource extraction, all the way up through the point where you buy the product and take it home, or maybe Amazon delivers it. The issue is that all ecological systems and the institutions that we live within are forming a kind of ecology. It's just out of sync with the ecology that is the meadow. So the metaphor that I want to share with you is that I feel with my work that I'm constantly tending the meadow, tending all these little relationships that are coming together to make this ongoing life, but the world is full of lawnmowers. And the lawnmowers come in with the whirling metallic blades and they just destroy all this relational life. And the meadow can do nothing except make dandelions. But seriously, there is this issue that industrial habit does roll over the top of the meadow, and it has its own set of criteria. 
whatever metaphor you want to use. We have to clean this up. We have to solve the problem. But in the process, all of the homes for all the insects, all the possibilities for ongoing pollination and all the organisms that are part of that process, from the owls to the rodents, to the microbiomes in the soil, to the grasses, to the mosses, to the fungi, to the, right? They're all interrupted. And that is what happens when you try to solve things that are in complex systems with the wrong level of solving. What I loved about the nuggets that I gleaned from everyone who's listening to this is already gathering Nora Bateson is a queen. And what I got from the nuggets were things like that really have just been resonating in my mind as little talismans, little signals you threw at me and would like, take that with you back to Australia. And one of them was, you know, and I knew this first part of the sentence, but I hadn't quite ever believed that the second part of the sentence was a thing. The first part of the sentence is, we cannot solve the problems in front of us with the same mindset that created them in the first place. So I knew that. And I was like, that's fucked because that's all we've got, right? I was like, I couldn't, I'm a creative person, but I still felt the grinding kind of oppression of the lawnmower container. Always the lawnmower. Every time I'd maybe have an intuition, the lawnmower. And internalised lawnmower. And then you threw that second part at me in Scandinavia and I was like, oh, that's genius. We need a new logic for this moment. And maybe the word's not logic, but I love the proposition. We need a new logic. And then you link that to the meadow. And then I come home and all I can think about is biodiversity and reading this book, Wilding, about Isabella Tree and her husband rewilding their 4,000-acre farm, NEP, in the UK. And as she's writing about these depleted, lawn-mowered landscapes, these restricted, restrained, straight-jacketed, perfect landscapes that really have set new baselines in our experience of the natural world. I'm comparing all the scientific language around biodiversity to our minds. What we have done to the earth, we have done to our minds. Exactly. There is like a, a landscaped, controlled, monocropping idea garden that is cultivated. And we're all doing it because we look at each other and we go, oh, good thinking, nice mind. It's nice and tidy. It's nice and correct. It's saying all the right things in the right row. And actually, we have abundant life under the soil and all around us waiting for us to change signals. And I don't know, I'm just in it. I'm like, I think I get it. <laughs> I still feel like, you know, I feel like a modern human with an industrialized lawnmower mind, but I'm also a creative and I've always loved the rehearsal room where the possibility of new ideas can emerge from the relational field. I think for me, what is really essential is this idea of, of warm logic, actually, which is a, a paper that I'm working on right now with a, a logician named Matthias Varga. And this What's I, a logician? That sounds like a magician. Yeah, right? <laughs> Somebody who studies logic. Because logic is an interesting question. What is logic? And so for many of us, logic is tied up in the whole history of Aristotle, and A is not B, if B is not A, and the set of this and that. 
which presents us with an issue. And the issue is that if we look at logic like that, the logic is frozen and life is not frozen. So if we think of logic instead as a way of reasoning in our world so that we stay alive, then that is another approach. And in that approach, when we start to talk about what's warm logic, we're talking about logic that keeps the variables, that doesn't rule them out. And this idea that all the organisms in the family, all the organisms in the meadow, all the organisms in the society are changing. So we're talking about variables that are not a set variable. You know, we're used to thinking about that in terms of like X equals six. What we have now is X equals moving. So having a logic that can hold actually aliveness is a really big movement into a different way of perceiving and addressing those habits of thinking that would like very much for things to be laid out like an engineering map or an engine or, you know, something you could replace the parts and fix, but you can't replace the parts in a family. You can't replace the parts in a meadow. You can't replace those parts. They are compensatory. They're responsive. And when you realize you can't, then you think, ah, yeah, okay, this is systemic work. What we have to do, we have to change the relationships because this is relational. So then working with the relationships, it starts to be clear that mm, actually the relationships are made in communication. So maybe it's the communication we have to change. So then you get this weird thing happening where people start to change their script in hopes of changing the communication. But the changing of the script doesn't actually change the communication because the communication lives somewhere else. And communication is not what is said or even what's not said. It's what it's possible to say. That is the place where the variables are living. What is possible to say? I mean, I think as we look out in the world of our social media right now, this is a question, especially with what's happening in the Middle East and what's happening in Russia, what's happening in the the popular culture and the political frames, what's possible to say? And where are those limitations? Those Where are those bondages? Because they're invisible. They're hidden in the complicit understanding between us of what, as you put it, what should be grown in our garden of thoughts and what should not be. And there's been a monoculture around that. So where warm data comes in, well, let's be very careful here because there's two things to talk about. One is what is warm data and the other is what is the warm data lab. So the warm data lab is a process in which people are given open-ended space to play with a question together that crosses multiple contexts and allows a undergrowth to come alive of impressions that can meet each other. Okay, now let me back that up. So you might have the question, what is home in a changing world? Now, first of all, it's not just what is home. Because if you ask what is home, people will start to give you answers. So you don't want answers. What is home in a changing world keeps it moving, right? Home is changing. 
And then there's lots of different contexts and people sit around at the little groups of contexts. And there's one on history and one on tech and one on economy and one on family and one on ecology and one on health, for example. And they begin to move. What is home in a changing world through the context of economy? Meanwhile, somebody over there is in asking the question, what is home in a changing world in the context of family? And you hear them, you see them, you know you're in a room with all these contexts. This is important because it means that even when you're talking in the specific, you're actually holding it in a more broad transcontextual space. What is interesting is that people are always trying to figure out well, what's, what should we harvest? What's the outcome? What's the product of this? What do we get out of it? And it's like, no, 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 no. That's not what this is. What's happening now is you, there's a whole lot of impressions and memories and stories coming up for you that you actually are editing, reshaping, not saying. You're moving between these contexts and linking things in ways that are subterranean. And that's what's important. So for anyone who's lost in this conversation, I will say a few things. One is what I am understanding, like I'm definitely a feeling person and a creative person who is fascinated by the subterranean world, by everything that happens within our consciousness. I'm fascinated. But I've trained my brain to be a brainy thinking person. I can line up my thoughts in a row. You know, I love language. So I thread all my words together and make sense of that. It's one of my tools that I've sharpened from having been a very feeling child, probably with less language, but always loved language. So I was like, Ooh, I might weave this in. And what I feel you are talking about, and I am learning to reconnect with is that which is beyond language, the felt experience, the felt context all the parts of us that, as you said, that can read complexity in a room, all of us do it all the time on so many levels. But because our industrialised world really has the brain is the primacy, the, the thought space is where we hold the most weight, it's the most visible. But there are all of these other ways that we're reading things. And th that is an intelligence that we need to re-honour. So that's where my brain is going. And also I really want you to just say something really like with an outcome. <laughs> okay. So, so the problem is that our perception is practiced. Okay. Your perception, if you had been born 15,000 years ago, your perception of the world would be very different than it is now. So there is this kind of tyranny of this idea of what life is. And that we implant this tyranny into our kids. It's in the schools. It's in the idea of what you make for dinner and how you are in a marriage and what is death and how life is. And this is an issue because there is no is there. You know, if you were born a hundred years ago in Asia, there's a different kind of ising. If you were born in Texas yesterday, there's a different kind of ising in front of you. What is this world that we are learning mutually to be in? And that's the key is that it's a mutuality. That I think is something we usually underestimated is the way in which I'm learning to be in the world 
through the way that I see and feel and sense the people around me learning to be in the world. We're doing this together. And so this for me is why I get very nervous about all of these ideas of personal development, because I think what's really important is actually where we're holding each other. And if I say to you, you need to be a better person, better according to which is, which version of life are we talking about? My version, your version, the version of 15,000 years ago or 15,000 years from now, which version? There's infinite versions of better. But when I ask the question differently and I ask, who can you be when you're with me? Who can I be when I'm with you? That's an ecological question. Do you see the difference? When I ask, who can you be when you're with me? I'm changing me. And I'm making space for you. That's ecology. It's not that I'm not changing me. It's that the frame of it is automatically in mutual learning. So I hear part of what you're saying. I know that I shouldn't make the assumption it's benevolent, but I really want a benevolent outcome, according to me, Barry. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to know what's right and wrong. Like how do we form morality if we don't write the Ten Commandments down, if we don't follow the learned wisdom of the past? Like in that mutuality, if you're in a toxic feedback loop, the mutuality will be bad. And this is where I think a lot of systems thinking goes awry. But wait, can I have benevolence? Can I have good and bad? Can we have those constructs? Because now we know, like Isabella's in the book, I'm going to get back to the meadow. In the old days, we would cut down the dying 500-year-old oak tree. But now we let the dying oak tree become the home of all the critters that love a good dead oak, because it is part of the living cycle is to be dead in the meadow too. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't want to be abstract. Okay. So here's the problem is that it's back to the industrial habits. And it's this idea that if you create a cool enough systemic solution that you can make a model of it and take it to scale. Yes. Everybody wants scale. And so right there, you're going to have a problem. And so this is why for me with the warm data work, one of the most interesting things that happens is that people become sensitized to the way in which their own lives and memories have been produced through multiple contextual processes, right? So that recipe that they got from their grandmother and the way she used to make it for her has to do with culture, has to do with economy, has to do with land, has to do with ecology, has to do with history, has to do with technology, right? All of these contexts are woven together in their family, in their very intimate lives. For me, I I mean, I have to tell you in no uncertain terms, I've been around a whole lot of people who considered themselves to be professors of morality in one direction or another, whether it was diet or exercise or spirituality or systems thinking or psychology. And I can tell you that for most part, they are not living their lives when it comes to their family, when it comes to the issues that they face at home, the way they are in their intimate world, all that is just gone. 
All right. So what I'm interested in is tending that sensitivity and sensitizing to that way in which the integrity itself is the ability to respond in ways that we haven't responded before, which is so the opposite of the way we think about integrity as being that you say the same thing today that you said yesterday, and that gives you integrity. Actually, no, we are in a time when we better be learning. We better be able to respond differently and to be paying attention to what's happening in the complexity that we are and that the people around us are so that we are able to make responses that don't just hit that first order flame, that go beyond that. And that's not a downloaded morality. That's an attention. So for me, the good and the bad, I, I get a little confused with that because I've seen so many situations where, for example, somebody who got themselves in real trouble learned something and then that learning becomes a gift. Yes, I just had that happen yesterday. Someone posted something on social media and he came to our house yesterday crying and said, I made the biggest mistake. I've acted counter to my own humanity and I've disappointed myself and my family. And, and I can't, like he was really like crushed by something he had posted. But what we said in the room yesterday is actually your lived experience, this encounter with your own mind and its impact on the world is a gift and we need to now give that gift back to the world when you're ready. And the kind of learning that is needed now is there. And so that's where that's where I'm tending is that space because that's what makes it possible. A new kind of logic, a new kind of recognition of what world we're living in. And, and it, that has to be really intimate knowing. It can't be a download of a model that we're just going to implement. That's the thinking that got us into this. I'm doing, there's, I think, 800 warm data hosts in the world now, or maybe more. And this capacity to do this thing that sounds very abstract in the podcast is actually right there. We need to revalue the warm logic, the one that what you said before, I, I felt like crying when you were talking about logic that has and includes aliveness. And aliveness is a like to a lot of people who are living with an industrialized lawnmower kind of mind is like, we've got to cut that shit out because that is vague. And what are you talking about? That's arty. But I'm realizing it's really, it's so real and it can really be worked with in this bridging work between the hospicing of the old and the midwifing of the new. And I feel like this is where hope lives. When I'm exploring biodiversity and rewilding, the thing that kind of shocks me, I feel like a child, a little, like a little child in this sort of wonder of it, but also like the... <gasps> Five minutes to midnight, could it be? Because for the last 18 months while I've been exploring the meta crisis, I just got like increasingly depressed. <laughs> and I told you, I was like, go home and hug your children, energy. It was like, that's it, we're done. But like when I'm exploring rewilding now, like on NEP in the UK, that incredible farm, they were talking about how whole species that were extinct on the British Isles are showing up in their farm all of a sudden, from flora to fauna, like orchids 
that were actually lying dormant in the soil, they've renatured it and it's all just waiting to come back. So that's where hope lives. Like turn the freaking lawnmowers off in our minds and in the world. Allow the living world around us to restore aliveness and then reweave ourselves back into abundance. And recognize that when they started with that farm, they didn't do it with the purpose of refinding the orchids. So this is a really important piece of, you know, where is the action is what I'm hearing you also ask. The intention of that action, what's the design? What's the intention? What's the purpose? These are questions that come with industrial process. And it's not that making that farm did not have purpose. It's that the purpose that it had was the purpose to allow things to be in relationship and to create other things. Okay, so that's aliving. That's putting things side by side that can respond to each other and not controlling it. Like that orchid that came back. There are lots of dormant possibilities, but the conditions for that to happen are nourishing of relational process and communication, which is a semiotic process. Oh my God, what does semiotic mean? I didn't know at university what it meant and it's still ter- <laughs> it still terrifies me. Well, we me. can leave it in the realm of communication, of what's possible in the communication, what's in the grammar, okay? The grammar of our behavior, the grammar of how we see each other and assess each other and figure out how and who to be with each other. Okay, so... The practice, okay, it takes practice and to, to practice in a fragmented, broken world. There's generations of people who've been through the school systems and had the magic drained out of life. I appreciate education and I think we also have to recognize we have a problem. My father used to weep when I would get on the bus to go to school. He thought they would ruin my mind. They didn't ruin my mind, but Partially, they didn't because I could hold his tears as a warning. And so how do we teach our kids and be with each other in this time in a way that gets the rent paid, that gets us through tomorrow, that gets us through the airports, and also allows us to change the relationships we're in with each other? Because that's the big piece. And it's practice. What does it look like? It doesn't look like knowing ahead of time what's going to happen. So for me, the hope and the possibility is usually lurking in ways that we have no idea what it looks like. And suddenly somebody, whatever, they first they quit smoking or they go home and they have a whole different kind of conversation with their kid. And then that leads to the next relationship shifting a little bit. See, the way that we perceive the world we're in and each other is in the grammar of our being. And so if that grammar changes, then all kinds of things can change in what's possible. And this is nth order shift. This is not first order shift. What you're seeing in the farm is that the intention was to make room for relationships to make relationships. But you don't know what's going to come out of that. How do you steer that into good or bad? And I think the underlying question there, honestly, is tone. It's aesthetic. It's an atmosphere. It's an attitude. And if it's the attitude of what's in it for me and how do we get there faster, that's what you're going to end up with. And it's going to break things. But wait, Nora, what about 
urgency. Yeah, that's the thing. For decades, I've been saying we do not have time to be in a hurry. If you're in a hurry, you're going to make first order mistakes. It's incredible how much faster things move when they are given room. That's something that I've seen again and again. I can't even express how many times I've seen. I get it. I haven't practiced it much. I get what you're saying. (laughs) What I would love to talk about with you is actually double binds. There's a chapter in my new book on double binds and the poly crisis. So double binds, this is a theory that my father is known to bring, have brought into the world with a group of people at the Mental Research Institute. It was actually pre-Mental Research Institute in Palo Alto in the 50s. But actually, that's not where it originated. It actually originated in relationship between my father and an anthropologist filmmaker dancer named Maya Darren. And both my father and Maya were interested in different ways of knowing. Okay. So this issue of like, how do you get outside the patterns and the habits of epistemological thought? Because the way we see the world becomes the way we see the world because that's how we see the world. So it's how we're going to see it. By the way, none of us know that. Like we don't know that we don't know. That's the problem. It's really easy to say, oh, we need a new narrative. We have to have a paradigm shift. we got to have systems change. But the stuff that we're working with here is deep. And so for me, I think what I'm really frustrated by in the world right now is the shallow approaches to dealing with these really deep questions. And this because it's faster, it seems easier, but it's shallow and the issues are deep. And so... It's not going to do us any good to respond to the urgency with a shallow response. It just makes it worse and it makes it take longer, which is what I mean by we don't have time to be in a hurry because the depth it has to change and it will change. And the second that changes, right, the, the orchid will come back and it will come back much faster than you think once there is a fertile space for it. So the double bind. Okay, the double bind is this idea that it's impossible to have some kind of success. So, you know, you can have the experience of your partner says, you never tell me that you love me. And if your partner says that to you, you are in a double bind. Because if you suddenly say, oh, yes, I do, then you're only saying that because you they told you to, and it doesn't really mean what they want it to mean or you want it to mean. And if you don't say it, they're right. So you can't actually win. You can't succeed. You can't get it right. And this is a theory that because it came out in terms of psychology in the 50s, it got placed in human interaction. But it was always supposed to be an ecological theory that actually dealt with evolution, that every organism finds itself in that moment of contextual relational process where the things they used to do to survive are no longer viable because all the other organisms changed. So you become obsolete or you make a leap of learning in relationship to the other organisms. So the double bind right now in terms of what I'm seeing all over social media is if you don't say something about what's happening, that's a way of just perpetuating what's happening. If you do say something, you better say something very carefully because otherwise... The trigger points are everywhere 
And if you say it too abstract, then it's abstract and not real. But if you say it too granularly, then it's your experience and not somebody else's. And you have to speak, but you can't speak. And we're in a double bind. This double bind exists everywhere. Okay, we have to live in a new way and feed our children and teach our children to live in a new way. But we have to pay the rent and drive the car and go to the grocery store and pay the taxes and do all the things we have been doing. So we can't not do that or we die. But if we do that, we are eliminating the future of generations to come. These are double binds and they are everywhere. How do you respond to a double bind? What do you do when you're in a double bind? And I think the double binds of the poly crisis are everywhere. You've got to send your kid to school, but the school is educating them to be in a world that has long since passed. And you got to go to work, but you go to work and that pulls you deeper into the stress and the habit of all the things that are actually making everybody unhealthy and destroying all kinds of other processes. Everywhere you turn, there is a double bind. So for me, this topic is really important. And I will just say right out front, the way you deal with double binds is you meet them with multiple contextual observation and inquiry, communication, relationship. I actually get that. The stakes just are so high. They're so high. For all of humanity. That's like the meta crisis, you know. Oh, oh, I just want to tell you something that when you were just speaking about the meta crisis and you have your lovely Australian accent, I heard meadow crisis. And I'm like, yeah, that's actually the issue. Welcome to the meadow crisis. I love it. Yes. It's a meadow crisis. And what you're saying, my reaction to it has been my only response that feels authentic and has integrity for me is in relationship in intimacy. There you go. I went into intimacy and relationship and I just called all my beloveds on the ground everywhere and was in a connected field. And then I was like, had people who were on online saying to me, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Everyone's evil. Everyone's bad everywhere, unless they're with me or against me and all of those paradigms. And I went, oh no, there is goodness and generosity and orchids fucking everywhere, people. Yeah. And you see what I mean now about you have to go into the intimate. If you don't touch the complexity in the intimate, the approach to dealing with it at this other global externalized place is going to be violent, actually. There's not actually another word. It's going to be violent. And so this, for me, is why this book is completely written to invite the theory and your whole intellectual self right there with the way you raise your kids, the way you make love to your partner, the way you eat, the way it's got to be completely integrated into it. It's making me think about one of my other favourite mentors. You're now in that realm and favourite people on earth, which is Esther Perel. And Esther talks also in parallel to what you're saying about the erotic life and that actually how we encounter in an intimate relational way every aspect of our own aliveness in this body, in this lived experience, affects all the relationships going on and on forever from us and that those people that she grew up with who came out of the Holocaust, some of them came out not dead and some of them 
came out alive. And in many ways, it's kind of a lens and a frame. There's something in that. There's something in our very intimate relational aliveness. And it feels very hard to believe that is the key to the doors we're trying to open. Yeah. That's, I think, why it's hard to understand your work because the brain is like just doesn't fit. I don't get the logic. Like, how, but then how do we, because you said it here, I want design, intention, purpose, outcome. And this is juicier than that and going to take a lot of practice. It's indelible, but it's there. I think that example of the orchid, it gives us hope. I want to read you a poem from the book. This piece is called Kinky. And so I think it fits into this conversation. When you see the clarity of a future horizon, turn quietly into the thick bush. The more elegant response is the one that wiggles, slipping from grasping anxiety, avoiding clean edges. Time brings a way through the impossible, but it oozes, slimy, entranced by the twisty, sticky, unwieldy bits, the tangents, the detours, the curly pockets of crud and life. The clear path is itself a warning. Trimmed and tucked by Procrustean impulses of industrial habit, instead, find the vital tangle of broken lines and crags, a fest of possibility in the festering, societies of ideas decomposing. Stinky belly buttons have more to offer the scouts now than a thousand articles of strategic analysis. Weird dreams, untidied, sing the airy maps so they will not be found by the ones looking for management. And numbers will mock their lovers. Memories are rioting against reason. The future won't fit into the fear of rotting. It is the green fur itself. The future is kinkier than we thought. So I want to invite that. Bring it. Keep your eyes open for the furry, green, rotting bits because our existing epistemological habits are rotting. They are rotting. I know, but we cling to them like life rafts. And when I say we, I mean me. (laughs) When the way you talk and what you're saying, yes. And then I go, no, because I, there's so much trust and so much faith required to lean into what you're saying. I imagine people listening to this are like, chaos. (laughs) And I know it's not that. I know it's not that, but we might feel it is that. And we're in chaos anyway. That's the thing, isn't it? And it's, as you said, the tone of it is murderous. And I'd say that's the wrong tone. I know I'm still in binaries of wrong and right, but I'm just going to cling to these things as long as I can. Or it's flattening. I reject this idea that the solutions to this polycrisis, meadow crisis are flat. They cannot be flat because what we are responding to is life and aliveness, and that's not flat. So if the response is not alive, how does it produce life? Nora Bateson, I just love you. I love you too. (laughs) Shit. Yes, I feel insecure regularly about where my aliveness leads me or what it asks of me. And 
I'm back in the rehearsal room when you talk, hunting and exploring and dancing and singing and rolling around in the muddy mud, which is actually the aliveness. And that is where all the keys are hiding, waiting for us to create the conditions. And I really feel your work has given me a sense of trust and faith again. It opened a doorway in my mind where I felt like actually all the curtains were closing. I think I love it so much and I could have finished this podcast at a number of moments, really perfect moments, and I love this moment. And there's one more that I'm going to ask you about, which I can't stop thinking about it. Like I really, I know you've told this story at other times, but it's really just been with me. Your father was Gregory Bateson, who um, worked for decades in anthropology and many other things. And you told me an amazing story about being a little girl in a car with him in Big Sur. Yeah, I love this story too, because it's an example of this thing that you don't know that you don't know. This story begins actually with somebody asking me, hearing this sort of contextual stuff and I got to put I can't spend my life thinking about the context of the context. You got to do things. Somebody asked me, like, what did your dad do in an emergency situation? Were you ever in an emergency situation with him? And I said, nope. And then I thought about it and I realized, actually, I think I was in at least one, but I didn't think of it as an emergency at the time, which is important. And the emergency situation was that we were in my family's old VW van hippie family in Big Sur, California, on the teeny tiny little two-lane road that runs with giant mountains up one side and a plunging cliff into the Pacific Ocean on the other. And my father loved people. When he saw that there was a young man hitchhiking, he picked him up. And the young man got in the car and he put his rucksack down and then he were started to drive and my father was maybe the worst driver that you ever wanted to be in the car with because he was always distracted by that hawk over there or look there's a whale in the ocean or look at this there's a new plant blooming and you're like the road um but this guy pulled a knife out and put it held it to my father's rib cage and we're driving on this perilous road and I am a like nine or 10 year old kid in the back seat, no seat belts, of course, it's whatever it is, 1978. And you might think of this as an emergency situation. But what happened was that my father looked down at the knife and looked over at the guy and said, ah, oh, what have we here? And how did you get yourself into this mess? And his question was not a technique, was not a methodology. This was my father's whole being, all right, from the twitch of his eye to the flush in his cheek to the pace of his breath in honest and authentic, loving inquiry. What happened to you, brother? How did you get here? And the man started to talk. And they started talking and he gradually relaxed and he was holding the knife then in his own lap and he eventually put it away. And we kept driving down the road and 45 minutes went by. And eventually we came to a place where he was going and my father dropped him off and gave him a little money and our home phone number, because that's what you do when someone pulls a knife on you. You give them your home phone number. 
and um, actually gave the guy a hug and said, if you ever need anything, please don't hesitate to contact me. And I never registered as a child. I didn't register this as an emergency because it never was one. There was never a spike of fear of adrenaline in the car. There was never that moment. What he perceived was never, I am being mugged. And if you are sitting there with a knife in your side, you might perceive that the options would be, one, I could fight back, or two, I could submit. All right? And that would be the double bind that most people would find themselves in. But he perceived a different context entirely. He perceived the story of this person. And without judgment, without pity, he just cared. He just wanted to know, what's your story that brought you here? The intent was not to fix the problem. The intent was actually rooted in care. First of all, that is like the best story ever. What an orientation, what a lesson for all of us to sit with those double binds, like that how our mind would train us, like how we could practice to respond differently in all these moments, especially this moment. There's an actual war going on. What is the third way and the fourth way and the 17,000 different ways? And what would an economy look like if care was the intention? not profit. We could play with all these questions and live into them also in the relational field. And We could. And I think we should. And we do. Thank you, Nora. I think we may need another 20 podcast conversations. I love that idea, Barry. Thank you so much. There's something magic that happens when you hear Nora talk, when you're kind of in her presence and you're having the conversation. Her work, though hard to wrap my head around, it just connects me in the spaces beyond my logical brain. It makes so much sense in my bones and has left me with so many thoughts and questions. So if you, like me, had a thousand more questions that came up for you in listening to us talk, please send them in to me at podcast at smallgiants.com.au because I reckon there were about 20 more conversations I could have with Nora, so I'd love to include your questions too. When she said that the way we perceive the world is in the grammar of our being, I just, I feel so hopeful, like I've been hunting through the meta-crisis, which she called the meadow crisis, and I think it is a meadow crisis. What a beautiful way to frame a new way forward, that we don't know what we don't know, and we could actually soften into that and let emergent ideas find us. Big love to you all. This episode was part of a special 10-part season where I've been exploring systems thinking in the metacrisis. And we'll be bringing you more mind and heart expanding conversations to fill your cup after the break in February. But we also have an incredible catalogue of episodes from our previous podcast, Dumbo Feather. I speak with some of my heroes like Esther Perel, Nate Hagens, Brene Brown, Johan Hari and more. 
So if you want to listen, they are there on the Wisdom in Action podcast, available on your favorite podcast app. If you want to turn this wisdom into action, go to smallgiants.com.au for more information about the incredible programs and events we run. You can also find pieces of wisdom that you can turn into action for each episode at smallgiants.com.au forward slash wisdom and action, along with the show notes. And of course, I absolutely love hearing from you. You can connect with me on Instagram at berryfeather, follow the podcast at wisdom and action, or write to us at podcast at smallgiants.com.au.